Hello and welcome to IntrepidTimes.com. This is Nathan Thomas about to interview Charles Anderson, a New Zealand writer and journalist whose work has focused on uncovering mysteries back at home and getting to the bottom of the story overseas. Today we talk about writing in and about New Zealand, as well as his international adventures from East Timor to South America. Enjoy. So, Charles, welcome to the show. Um, what are you working on right now, if anything? I'm actually doing a story about um, this old photograph that I found uh, in a Collingwood museum about three years ago, and it sort of stuck with me all that time, and I kind of took a photo of it and described it um, sort of as the most badass photo that I've ever seen. It's basically of these uh, 17, uh, what was described in the caption as flax mill workers, standing outside their hut in 1906 in a remote part of the northwestern part of the South Island of New Zealand, um, where they're just kind of set up in these bizarre pose, poses. They've got one guy is uh, sort of set up with another guy with boxing gloves. Another guy's uh, got a rifle pointed at a stuffed kiwi. Another guy's cutting someone's hair. Another person's reading a newspaper and someone else is sort of swigging from a bottle of booze. And it's just this bizarre kind of myriad characters <clears throat> that you know you kind of have to think about the circumstances and what led these people to even be in this position at that particular moment in time and then set up with all these props um displaying you know just i guess what they i don't know if they, what they got up to in the bush or whatever but it kind of just stuck with me for a long time and i just decided to actually just bite the bullet and do a bit of a story about um this photograph and where it was taken and who, who these people were and why they were there in the first place. So it's kind of led me on this uh, little bit of a journey down a bit of a rabbit hole um, and out to the out to this sort of very remote, still very remote part of the, the country um, and and also the, the circumstances behind the photographer and who he was and why he was there. So um, it's been really interesting and it's sort of scratched a bit of an itch that I've had for a while, which is always nice to do when you're working as well. So it looks like this is a, a familiar process with a lot of your work, like, for example, with The, the Lost Plane of uh, George Hood and John Moncrief and your article in the General Grant's Gold, this is that you find some curiosity like this photo or a, kind of an unsolved mystery. And as you say, kind of just go down the rabbit hole, see where it takes yeah, you. Yeah, um, I guess I've kind of got into this line of work partly because you did want to have a good excuse to go and, you know, um, scratch these itches and find out. Uh, interesting things that perhaps other people don't know about. Um, unfortunately, my kind of mystery <laughs> mystery expeditions haven't necessarily led uh, to any definitive answers. So my sort of genre perhaps is still unsolved mysteries, which is a little bit disappointing. But um, it's still, I guess, the idea is to try to make it an interesting journey regardless of the outcome. I got the sense when reading your uh, your Lost Plane story at lostplane.co.nz and that even though... The, the people you were exploring with had not found the plane. They, they kind of believed that they definitely would one day, or I think one of the people said, look, this enormous motor isn't going to disappear. It's still out there. And like the, the solution exists, even if he may have found <laughs> Perhaps it. that's the eternal hope, I guess. I mean, I, I even I got an email from one of those guys not long ago who's still out there searching for it and was convinced that he'd now found it, but I haven't heard from him since. So, you <laughs> since know, he, no, <laughs> no, I didn't get it. I, I did okay. call him back a couple of days later and, and you know, cause I, I, you kind of get sucked into this world a bit and you know, you want to stop, I mean, as much for the story as, as for your own personal curiosity and I guess for the hope for the people around you, but you do, you know, you get sucked into this um, 
mentality of you know you have to find it and you know you're definitely going to find it and you kind of have to take a step back and think of the probabilities and things as well from a professional perspective but um you know i i still want to finish that story the right way um so i'm hopeful that uh, if anyone does stumble across it this is the um first yeah first airplane to cross the tasman um, so it would be a significant find if it ever was discovered but um you know i guess the reality is that it might well be lost to lost to the bush you, you may discover these mysteries from the perspective of a writer documenting someone else's quest. And it seems like you, it kind of becomes your mission as well. You become just as passionate about it as the people who are there in the first place. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a definitely element of being um, sucked up in the excitement and enthusiasm of the people around you. Um, but I guess the initial excitement is that you want a story which, you know, you can carry through to its best conclusion. And um, after working very hard, to kind of get all the elements together for, you know, the str- a strong beginning and a strong middle. And then you really just, I mean, the, the obvious uh, conclusion and climax to a, a really good story is, you know, <laughs> for a mystery story is to solve the mystery, right? So it's always a bit frustrating. And I've, I've, given, it, I've given it a good whack a couple of times with these, you know, with these a little bit um, eccentric mysteries. But, um, yeah, haven't quite cracked the perfect one yet, but that's always the challenge, I guess. Yeah, one, one day, yeah. one day. Do you do a lot of this kind of thing uh, overseas? You, you've written from you know, Africa, Indonesia, East Timor, Europe. Do you take the same attitude when you're over to, there? To greater and lesser degrees. I'm not, not so much with the mysteries. I mean, my thing is whether it's, um, you know, sort of hard journalism or travel writing has always been to find a story of some description with, with strong characters to hang it off. And I, I, I approach travel writing and journalism in exactly the same way. And I kind of get frustrated when I see travel writing, which doesn't sort of adhere to those to at least showing that you've made a really good effort to to do a little bit of digging and find those stories um because there's not i mean in reality that there's no real difference other than the subject matter and you know journalists cover all kinds of subjects from you know um sort of covering court and the cops and the police to you know to lifestyle and and i think the same process applies regardless of the subject um so with with travel um traveling and, and writing overseas, you know, it is, you're always got your mind open to uh, the story and trying to find the elements to, to piece it together and the characters that are going to hold it together. Um, but I haven't found a, I don't think a really good mystery story overseas yet, but I, um, one day I'll probably do that as well, hopefully. One of the places that really jumped out at me that uh, you've worked in or, or, or written from when I was uh, reading up on you is East mm. Timor. Can you tell me a bit about your experience? Yeah, I, was a bit, I felt a little bit audacious. I just left university and just finished my um, sort of university degree and my journalism qualification. And I got a job at a newspaper and just a couple of months into it, I, had, I, I sort of had to tell my editor that I was leaving uh, temporarily at least because I got a scholarship to go to Indonesia um, on almost uh, kind of guided internship, I guess, if you will, like you spent some time studying the language and um, having lectures from people within uh, Indonesian politics and media. And then you'd go out and spend time at a publication um, in Jakarta. And then on the end of that, I'd always been fascinated with East Timor. It was kind of um, one of the countries that, uh, as I was about, uh, what was I, 13 or 14, they were going through the independence movement and their... they're voting for, for independence, and um, my brother was quite political on this, my older brother, and uh, it sort of 
schooled me up on John Pilger and things. I remember pl- almost plagiarizing completely an essay of John Pilger's on his team or for one of my school projects, and it probably shocked my teachers somewhat. But it sort of always stuck in my mind um, as a place that I wanted to visit because he'd build up this picture of what it looks like and what it is. And so I kind of made the effort to, to go out there for – it was only for a week or so um, and um, just, I guess, get a feel for the place. But um, it was a really good experience because it kind of – as a as a new journalist um, and a new uh, person trying to figure out what the hell this career path is all about, um, it made you realise that you know you don't require much <laughs> preparation or or much I don't know talent or skill to, to to get out there and actually just go and do what you, you want to do. Um, I, I met up with a guy who I just had dinner with, and he suggested that I go and interview the first president of East Timor, who was uh, in I guess in power for. I think five days in 1975 before Indonesia uh, before Indonesia invaded, um, and he was just living in a house by himself on the waterfront. And I just sort of I said okay, and I just rolled up there and asked him if he wanted to have a chat with me. And he hadn't been spoken to uh, for quite quite a many years because he kind of faded into obscurity somewhat. Um, but still, you know, an in- fascinating guy. And I sat with him for an hour or so and just talked about you know what it was like to be uh, you know in part of a guerrilla movement that you know spanned many many years and then actually imprisoned by his own um, his own guys because of who they thought that he was um, collaborating with the indonesians so he was um, remember he was locked in a bamboo cage and shuttled across the sort of the hinterland of um east timor and all these kinds of things and, uh, yeah and sort of became again back into politics but never sort of reached the heights of his five days as president um, but yeah i also spent some time with the um, new zealand defense force over there and because they were um kind of peacekeeping mission mission at the time so you know, it wasn't it wasn't uh, sort of frontline reporting or anything, but it was just sort of going around with them and seeing what they did, and um, it was it was just definitely an interesting experience. Amazing to be able to just walk up to such a like historically significant figure at his at his beach house and just go, hey, can we have a chat? What was it? Yeah, like? I mean, I, th- I think it's the thing you learn on the job is that most people, regardless of their stature or their position, present or past, you know, they they're, they're interested in talking about. Uh, what they do and you know <laughs> obviously part of the reason why I'm talking to you right now is that you know it's 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 always nice to talk about your what, what you get up to and um, you kind of learn over and over again in the job regardless of the circumstance of people's triumphs or tragedy that more often than not in my experience that um, you will you'll people will sit down with you and they'll talk with you um, and so you know that was a really good lesson so early on in my career that you could do do that with someone of that particular prominence and and still you know come away with a with a really good story you mentioned in that interview you did with i think it was a pantograph mm-hmm. punch that mm-hmm. one of the people who really inspired you when you were younger was uh, the war correspondent john simpson yeah. and has that kind of frontline war reporting maintained a, a kind of a feature of the the work uh, no i never i never really got to that stage um it was kind of always there perhaps as a a hopeful thing that i might try uh at some point but i guess as you get older uh you kind of realize that it's a i mean i i know people who do that kind of work and it's a huge sacrifice and i'm you know sort of immensely you know huge admiration and for, for what they do but you know you really have to be i think at a certain um, you, you know, you have to be very comfortable with the decisions that you make, and and you know, being in constant danger and vigilance for your safety and that kind of thing. Um, I'm not quite, I'm not quite there at the moment. You know, I've got a young family and that sort of thing. I mean, I, I try and I guess have elements of, of the kind of um, 
interest and adrenaline that perhaps that might elicit, but certainly nothing to the to the extent of what um, those reporters go through every day. Um, and you know, in, in putting their lives on the line, it's, it's a different different game, and I would never sort of pretend to know what that's like. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I think I've sort of shelved that for now. But uh, you know, as a, as a younger man, I certainly um, certainly thought about entertaining the idea, but no longer, I'm afraid. No, I, that's <laughs> totally totally fair, fair enough. Um, so aside from uh, the Johns, John Simpson, John Pilger, what kind of other writers, journalists, travel writers do you find uh, have influenced your work or you particularly enjoy? Um, when I was younger, and I was just figuring out the craft. I mean, I was I read a lot of Gay Talese um, from Esquire, those early Esquire days. Um, you know, particularly kind of the, the idea of how you experiment with um, the, the narrator and, and the writer's voice in it. And there's a, I mean, my favorite piece of his um, is a profile of Joe DiMaggio um, sort of long after he's uh, was you know a famous baseball player and he's sort of faded into obscurity himself somewhat and owned a restaurant on the waterfront and Gay Talese introduces himself as almost a third character he speaks about himself in the third person and that sounds a little bit pretentious in some ways but sort of if done elegantly um, it does introduce a whole realm of possibilities that one hadn't thought about when you're just trying to figure it out I did I did try it once but um, I never have again <laughs> because you know that didn't quite work for me I don't think I had quite had the skills or, or, or now to pull it off um, so I really I really enjoy his work um, more recently I and kind of um, some, some of the similar sort of story ideas I guess David Grand from the New Yorker uh, who uh, is not only a, you know, a great reporter but uh, seems to also entertain these ideas of going off and trying to discover mysteries I mean he actually did a story um, in New Zealand the New Yorker about uh, chasing giant squid down I think in the in the, um, in the south of uh, yeah, near, near where you are I think in uh, Stewart Island and that kind of thing um, but also his, his biggest book was uh, called The Lost City of Z which is about him going into the depths of the Amazon jungle chasing kind of ghosts of, uh, of early uh, Victorian explorers who were who were convinced that there was a city that had existed in this particular region of the Amazon, you know, centuries before the first supposed discovery of, of civilization there. Um, and he, you know, he went off there himself and, and managed to sort of craft this amazing story out of it. Um, really enjoy his work. Um, in the more journalistic field, um, Eli Saslow from the Washington Post does really, really wonderful work. Um, and uh, Gene Weingarten, who uh, won the Pulitzer twice for his feature writing, and I, I enjoyed his writing so much that I kind of um, ended up googling him a bit and found out that there was a, there was a chap called um, almost name escapes me now Tom Schroeder, who uh, was his editor at the Washington Post magazine um, for quite some time, and basically had edited those two Pulitzer Prize-winning pieces. One was about um, getting the most famous violinist in the world at the time to basically play a subway set as an anonymous busker and just document what happens when you get, you know, someone who's capable of creating beautiful music but putting it in a very uh, incongruous and public setting. And another one was about um, parents who leave their children in their car and uh, forget about them and uh, by misfortune and mistakes they end up end up dying in the, in the car which is a sort of tragedy which happens not very often but one that probably probably more than you might think um so i looked up this editor and i found out that he'd recently just become a freelance editor and uh, he he actually helped me with that lost plane piece um, it was sort of a, a professional development process for myself and you know i wanted to know how i kind of stacked up with people that i, I admired and whether or not you know someone like that could really uh, you know 
go through line by line through my work and sort of tell me how to get better, which is a process you don't really get. I don't think to the extent that, in America, that it does in America, the, the, the devotion and um, expense and time um, put into making and creating really great pieces, you know, I don't think you find – you don't certainly don't find that in New Zealand in my experience, and I don't think you could find it in England either um, to quite the same degree. Um, so it was quite eye-opening for me to have that experience with, with Tom. So working with this editor who you'd admired, who'd been responsible, well, involved in some of the pieces that had won Pulitzer's and you were, you know, working closely with him. How, how was that experience? It was, it was fantastic. It was, um, you know, it was basically, we, we never actually, I don't think spoke on the phone ever, but it was more just a back and forth with drafts of the piece and he would, you know, send his changes and explain why I should be doing this and taking out redundant things, but then adding in other things. And it was kind of an interesting notion for me that you know you can make something longer with more detail but make it read shorter because um you know the reader not that they're um not that they're they need well that well you need to you need to give the the, the reader as much help as possible so they need to have as, as fewer questions in their mind as possible so you can if you if you make a statement or, or a quote or whatever to have the qualifying uh, information behind it to make sure that, that they can easily move on to the next point without having to just jar for an instant because in that jarring of an instant you know there's so many distractions in one's life that can you know that can just stop someone especially if they're getting into a larger piece you know it's it's very easy just to put it down for a second and you might never never, never get them back so I, I think i started with a draft of about um i don't know six thousand words or something and, and by the time tom finished tom and i finished with it it was i think it'd grown by another 1500 or so um but it, but it read a lot sh- shorter um so yeah it, it was a really great experience and not, not one that i've repeated yet but um at some stage i'd like to probably get, get back in touch with them and um, do, do something similar but um we see, we'll see when the right project comes along maybe Cool. It's interesting that you mentioned that, um, for example, David Graham uh, of The New Yorker had written about New Zealand, about hunting squid here. And I've, as we mentioned before, uh, before we started recording, I've spent from New Zealand, uh, like yourself, but spent the last several years, like traveling China, Poland, outside of New Zealand. And now that I'm back here, I'm only just started to kind of have the realization that, hey, New Zealand's actually a place that, you know, you can travel in and stuff happens here and you can write about it was this a process you went through as well or did you always kind of take an interest in what was around you yeah i mean i i've worked in sort of small town new zealand all the way to the larger metropolitan centers so my job has inevitably been trying to find interesting stories that exist i mean you know, albeit for a local market but i think the quality of a good story should be pretty universal regardless of the audience um so yeah I've never found it a problem to, to find things of interest uh, around the place. And, you know, I've, I've written about New Zealand for international international publications as well. Um, and I think there's probably a growing interest in it rather than a waning one for all kinds of reasons. I think environmentalism, I think, and, can, and the um, conservation movement here is, is, is quite unique and has uh, the potential to sort of set some interesting precedents that people are probably very interested in. Um, you know, on the more more unfortunate end of the spectrum, you know, the earthquakes certainly brought people into people's um, into, into the you know in front of their faces quite dramatically for some time. And I and I think the rebuild effort in Christchurch, particularly um, in, the, in the same way, is kind of interesting and groundbreaking as a potential um, 
yeah, almost like a laboratory for how you rebuild a, a, a large city, large first world city in, in, in the wake of a, a large disaster. So, yeah, from the travel writing side of things, it's um, I've never – I don't think I've, I've written uh, sort of travel stories um, about New Zealand for international market, but um, – I'm just trying to think now. I mean, I, I mean yeah, uh, no, it's, it, I, I, I don't doubt that, that there are people that do that very well. Um, but it's, just, I mean, the challenge is, is kind of getting away from this this Middle Earth, Lord of the Rings centric notion of, of what New Zealand is. Um, and because I think the international viewership certainly still has that in their mind that that's kind of all New Zealand is, that it's this large, expansive green that uh, is sort of untouched and pristine. Um, I wrote a piece uh, quite a while ago. I, was, I had an internship in, for the New York Times in Hong Kong and wrote a kind of inflammatory piece about uh, it was on the way in, in the way, oh, I think the lead up to the Hobbit premiere about how basic New Zealand wasn't so clean and green and 100% pure. Uh, and it, it was to my surprise that I sort of switched on, switched on uh, Twitter the next day and saw it sort of blowing up as everyone, you know, from the Prime Minister to um, all kinds of. People were basically calling the people who I'd quoted the, the water scientists and you know, traitors to New Zealand and all sort of things. So it's you know it's, it's a certainly an insecurity that we have and one that we have to deal with. But um, the, cha- the challenge is making you know New Zealand a, a more rounded place than just a, a postcard, I guess. I think I, I wouldn't have connected it to you at the time, but I think I actually saw and read that piece of yours when it was when it was doing the yeah. rounds of the internet, but. I assure you, I was not making any any tweeting, <laughs> sure, any Twitter sure. comments, comments on it. It's it's very interesting this um, kind of insecurity you mentioned, and this goes this goes back a while. I remember you know you know the travel writer uh, Paul mm-hmm. Thoreau, uh, American bloke. Mm-hmm. He wrote about New Zealand in his uh, The Happy Isles of Oceania, and it really riled a lot of people. I, I thought what he wrote was hilarious. He was just sort of making fun of our accents, unreasonable <laughs> that criticism is, but people really really did not take it no well. we, we struggle with a sense of humor sometimes i think i'm not sure why that is because we i think we have we you know we kind of pride ourselves on it and i think it's uh, it's, it's it's pretty good but um i think when I, I think it's because of this we're at the bottom of the world uh sort of isolated and had to fend for ourselves and we we sort of want to be recognized on a larger scale as you know wonderful and, and great so whenever you know, we're mentioned in, you know, the 100 places you have to visit in 2016. Everyone's like, wow, look how great we are, all the most livable cities. It's like, yeah, hurrah. And then when someone brings up, particularly on an international scale, um, that, you know, something bad about New Zealand, you know, our child poverty or our environmental record in, in certain aspects, uh, it's, I mean, it is a huge furore. And, uh, yeah, we, we don't, we, I think that's a larger kind of national identity question that I'm probably completely unqualified to answer but um it's something always that, that's kind of bothered me as well that we can't seem to use it as a catalyst for um an interesting conversation more it's a, a, a sort of instinctual outrage um, i'm not sure the solution to that one no <laughs> don't worry i wasn't i was <laughs> expecting you to to solve our culture but it's yeah it's definitely a interesting thing to look at and i suppose one of the benefits of writing travel pieces about where you come from is that to some extent i imagine you've kind of given license more license to criticize than you perhaps would as a stranger although having said that i don't think it tends to stop a lot of other travel writers uh, from criticizing the yeah well, i guess perhaps up. people were more open to that kind of thing if they know 
I mean, it's the same with any kind of writing and any kind of journalism, particularly, I guess, what you call parachute journalism, where someone jumps in and, and will make these uh, write these sweeping pieces about a country that they haven't spent much time in and don't know the history of. Um, but and as a result, will get criticised because you know how how would they dare to report report what this country is really about or the city is really about? Um, but when it comes from someone who actually lives here and, and knows what it is about, then it's sort of it's it's a lot easier to digest. Apart from a uh, little old Aotearoa, any other like favourite places overseas that you want to go back to that you particularly enjoyed? Writing when I was about? younger, I went to I was in South America for quite a few months. It was I mean I was, I was eighteen years old and I was there for I think six months travelling from Ecuador down to Bolivia and Chile, and I sort of I've always wanted to go back there as um, a place that. Um, kind of drew me for all kinds of reasons, but you know the, the sort of colonial history and the, the language and um, the indigenous cultures. And I never really got, got to sink my teeth into that because I didn't know at that stage that I wanted to be um, a writer or a journalist. So um, it's, it's kind of on my radar of something that I'd like to go back and explore, particularly into Patagonia and, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, but we'll see when that happens. Well, thanks a lot for taking the time to chat charles i really enjoyed the conversation i look forward to reading that piece of work yeah yeah <laughs> me too pleasure nathan thanks for, thanks for talking to me